Hello and welcome to the Poplar Tapes. Uh, what you're listening to right now is the second in a three-part series entitled There's Nothing Wrong With Counting on Algorithms <laughs> and <laughs> the Digital Condition. <laughs> oh, sorry, I think that title is really funny. Um, and yeah, this section is going to be on algorithms in the market. But if you want to hear the entire series, please go back and listen to the first one. If you don't care about that, then that's also completely fine. And you can jump in here. So uh, my name is Keegan Irish. My name is Alex Bose. And uh, you're listening to The Poplar Tapes. This is a podcast about uh, philosophy and politics. Yeah, uh, it's a kind of collage of conversations and discourses that are uh, happening in the public sphere. And uh, we wanted to create a record of some of the cultural, social, and political issues that we're facing today as a civilization or global globalized context. We hope to take some of the political themes, events, and ideas that we uh, discuss and use them to help us understand our current historical moment. Beauty. All right. And uh, we ask that you would uh, follow us on Twitter, if you so desire, at The Poplar Tapes. And yeah, without further ado, let's get to our discussion. We've been talking about polarization. Uh, Before that, we talked a little bit about the history and context of algorithms. And now we want to move on to talking about uh, algorithms and the market. In, uh, in a commercial context, uh, algorithms have become extremely useful for companies. And we'll, we'll try and cover a few different ways in which algorithms in the market are related. Uh, so on the one hand, they've been weaponized by companies in order to segment and exploit people. And uh, you know that with the aim to generate, generate more and more profit. What these companies actually sell, uh, these companies being like, Facebook, Google, and so on, uh, are they're, they sell to advertisers profiles of their users. So the engagement that is generated on these various platforms becomes the data that then is incredibly valuable to targeting ads and this kind of thing, which is the main business model for uh, companies in Silicon Valley. Exactly, exactly. And, and I mean, tailored, tailored advertisements isn't always tailored to individuals who actually really have a lot of money to spend either. Mm-hmm. There's, this, uh, there's this excerpt that I, I want to read um, uh, from an interview with Kathy O'Neill. And she says, uh, quote, uh, tailored advertisement is an auction system. So the person who's willing to pay the most gets the opportunity to put an ad in front of you on Google or Facebook or whatever. So that's that's for the companies. But she says um, that also means that a poor and poorly educated single mother struggling to make a living to support her kids will be extremely valuable and vulnerable to a predatory payday loan company or for a for profit college promising to solve all her problems. Tailored advertising allows predatory industries to find their targets extremely efficiently. Absolutely. Yeah. So I mean, it's also a way of preying on people, right? And um, mm-hmm. and you know, another way in which algorithms interfere or intervene with uh, the market is I don't know. Take take Amazon for example. I mean, in 2014, Amazon's changed its recommendation algorithm so that it could give less presence 
to publishers who try to enter into price negotiations with with the company, right? I mean, this is in a business context or whatever, but um, in in any case, I mean, it's drawing attention to the monopolization, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So what um, when the networks are large enough, what they're capable of doing is completely monopolizing the uh, network or sorry, the market for these kind of uh, of networks. So the network effect, meaning um, the fact that the more a network connects people with one another, the more useful and attractive it becomes. Uh, so this network effect has given rise to a monopoly effect. Um, so the entire network can only consist in a single provider. And this is what Facebook has managed to do. They're probably the best example of that, where it's an extremely useful network for most people to be connected in with these different kind of communities and communal formations that they find valuable, where they get meeting and find their identity and, and get to participate in social life and so on. But if you leave Facebook as a provider, you also completely have to abandon um, those communities. Yeah, exactly. Like you, you, if you leave Facebook, you don't get to take your friends list with you. Right. So, but this connection between, um, between the network effect, the value of a network and the monopoly effect, that connection is completely fabricated for the sake of profit, um, on the part of these companies. And so the counter example is, uh, an older mechanism online, which is email. In the case of email, there are multiple networks that can communicate between one another. And you can communicate with anyone on any email network in a way that simply can't be done with social media. So the conditions are uh, are different in these two cases. Back to Stalder, uh, just to mention him again. But uh, yeah, he, he mentions how email is still a somewhat more democratic form of technology because uh because of a a protocol that was that was uh, invented in the 80s um i think it's called the simple mail protocol and that basically creates the conditions that kind of enforce independent networks to create an integrated space so that yeah i can have a gmail account and send mail to, you know, somebody's own personalized email or to Hotmail or whatever, mm-hmm. right? The, the example with social mass media like Facebook and uh, Instagram and potentially Twitter, I don't know, I, I haven't really used that, but these kinds of platforms are like privatized territories or something. Yeah. So rather than the kind of decentralized model of email, those are highly centralized Um Networks, which allows for the development of these algorithms that are very particular to the platform itself, you know, in, in a way that could never, ever happen with email. Like, you, we're just not going to find the same kind of pitfalls in terms of how email algorithms work as we are um, with the highly centralized, controlled, profit-driven models uh, of, the, of the major social media companies. The point being to say that this connection between having a valuable network or a worthwhile, useful network and having an absolute monopoly over uh, over that market, that's a fabricated connection. There's nothing necessary about it, right? It doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, and 
another another thing uh, in relation to monopolization is that uh, search engine operators in general, but Google more specifically, is known to privilege its own content by placing it prominently in search results. Mm-hmm. And since you know about ninety five percent of people don't even go past the first page when they're looking information up, that you know be, can become a pretty big problem. In twenty twelve, they put a lot of pressure on websites uh, whose information uh, was inaccessible to them uh, and manipulated the search results so that those websites uh, would be ex- essentially penalized for having um, copyright barriers. Right, so it's like they want mm. they want access to information that is protected by copyright law, uh, not only to exploit it with their algorithms, right? But uh, they, like Google is like one, I think one of the, if not the largest corporation that has um, digitalized tons and tons of reading material, right? So they end up kind Mm -hmm. of becoming the copyright holders in a way of like all of this reading material. And, uh, and I mean, that, that'll, that, that just gives them more and more strength. <laughs> yeah. And it's similar to what you're saying, uh, with the tactics, uh, used by Amazon. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. So maybe it's also worth pointing out that, um, algorithms are also used in the way that markets themselves are organized and function, especially today. And this is probably one of the most important uses of algorithms in our society is to make exchanges between stocks. You know, Tufeki talks about how when technologies are first developed, they often have a kind of liberatory potential. But historically, you see that there's in the wake of that, there's usually a consolidation of power um, that happens on the part of those who previously held power, those who suddenly find themselves with newly developed power and so on. So um, one of the ways that you could see this happening is that as um, computer technologies and algorithmic technologies advance, their main use, the main reason for that advancement is uh, in order to make these kind of stock exchanges, right? So, you know, there's this giant cable that was laid across the ocean um, a few years back uh, between New York and London. And the entire purpose of laying this cable was to speed up stock transactions by a few milliseconds, so yeah, millions of dollars um, were spent on that thing. Yeah. 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 Uh, so the infrastructure in which we can kind of build communities and we engage with one another online, like that infrastructure is owned and operated for the sake of these, um, these profit incentives. Those, those cables, they're, they're called submarine cables and there's, there's so many I, I urge you listeners to go online and just like search it up, you know, search up submarine cables and see what the map looks like. Cause a lot of the submarine cables that exist are also concentrated between uh, the European continent and the U S and then there's some to Canada, but you can see like the material inequality uh, already uh, by looking at the, some of the infrastructure. And I mean, there's tons of infrastructure for the digital the digital conditions beyond submarine cables. It's also fucking satellites in the space, like, you know, uh, data centers and all this kind of stuff. Millions of them. 
Yeah, and we have to think about who owns this infrastructure. Why is it being constructed? You know, we have a certain amount of access to the internet, and we benefit in some ways from digital technologies. But it's it's important to think about who owns it, who operates it, who constructs it. What are the purposes with which? Uh, what are the purposes they have in mind when they construct this uh, this infrastructure? You know, I think those are all kind of really, really important issues to get into. Um, yeah, definitely. So I wanted to bring up a quote from Stalder again that touches on this point, which me the point being that it's kind of it's the context and the ownership and the intentions of building this infrastructure rather than the infrastructure itself, which is an issue which is a kind of a political issue so it's like we said before like an algorithm is a math equation there's nothing wrong with that inherently there's nothing dangerous about a math equation but the context in which it's being deployed is uh what we need to think about critically yeah definitely so uh, St- Stadler writes, Stadler writes, sorry, uh, the problem experienced by the unwilling, willing users of Facebook has not been caused by the transformation of communication into data as such. This is necessary to provide input for algorithms, which turn the flood of information into something usable. To this extent, the general complaint about the domination of algorithms is off the mark. The problem is not the algorithms themselves, but rather the specific capitalist and post-democratic settings in which they are implemented. They only become an instrument of domination when open and decentralized activities are transferred into closed and centralized structures in which far-reaching fundamental decision-making powers and possibilities for actions are embedded that legitimize themselves purely on the basis of their output. So this kind of gets at that idea where there's nothing wrong inherently with data or counting or mathematical reasoning and computing, but to what ends are we deploying these technologies, right, as a society? And that's the stuff that we need to be thinking about because it's affecting us um, very severely. When you know we talk about polarization as an effect of like po- social and political polarization as an effect of the uh, profit motives embedded in the uh, business model of Silicon Valley, you know, that tells us that the ends to which like the kind of human creativity and ingenuity that goes into these marvels of engineering, the ends to which those marvels are being deployed is having this deleterious and destructive effect on our ourselves and on our so- the social fabric. I mean, there's a difference between saying that algorithms are never neutral or technologies are never neutral and saying that they're inherently bad or they're inherently destructive. Because when we consider these things as never neutral, it's mainly because they, yeah, they, what what happens is that they have an impact, right? And we just don't know, like, we'll, we'll see the effects of them, right? But yeah, they, they have an impact and they impact the way that uh, human, like human beings organize, and how civilizations organize, societies organize, yeah. and uh, they, yeah, they have these. They can have these really, really destructive effects as well. One thing to mention is that when we're thinking about algorithms in relationship to the market, uh, we also have to be thinking about the working class. I mean, just workers in general, uh, the labor, uh, you know, laborers, and uh, algorithms are. You know, big data algorithms have been engineered to s- schedule workers. 
uh, already. And so there's a, a scheduling software that exists, which considers a number of different variables, uh, like weather forecasts and sales trends. And uh, they've, been, they've essentially been created to maximize temporal efficiency and profitability of workers. By temporal efficiency, I just mean, you know, maximizing the amount of, la- like, the amount of labor that you can get in a specific amount of time from workers. Mm-hmm. And in this way, corporations can essentially reduce the amount of hours an employee will work while also maximizing the intensity and pr- profitability of the, uh, the work that they perform. And uh, I mean, the logic of these models becomes the force that governs the lives of these workers, not only, you know, their lives at work, but away from work as well. And one of the connections I made to this, uh, this kind of scheduling software is the fact that uh, the precariat class that exists today, you know, this, uh, you know, non-contract, uh, flexible working hours, uh, non-fixed schedules, non-guaranteed hours, th- these kinds of Usually no benefits. Yeah, no fucking benefits. Like, I mean, this precarious class is the perfect class to exploit with scheduling software because we're basically permanently on call. Uh, We're vulnerably dependent on employers and totally submissive to the caprices of algorithms that end up deciding how... Uh, deciding and organizing how individuals will be living their lives, both as workers and as just, like, people. Yeah. So, and, and you think about the way that that becomes integrated with um, algorithms which manage the market at the level of stocks, right? Like increasing profitability is going to be valued by those kind of algorithms. Like that's the output that they've been programmed to achieve. And so, if the means to do that is to push down harder on these workers, like you can absolutely bet that those that those programs that have been designed to do that are going to do that. And then that is installed as like a permanent black box, as a fixture of our social order that um, simply reinforces the harsh inequalities that already exist. It reinforces them and it installs them as kind of permanent and necessary insofar as this digital infrastructure um, is concerned. The way in which these algorithms are embedded, as we've mentioned, and how they're perceiving the human is hugely problematic. And I think this kind of ties into the origins and the history of data profiling, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, and um, as we had mentioned before, data profiles are what help companies tailor their advertisements. Um, but they're, they're, yeah, data profiling, which algorithms, I mean, algorithms are, are used to help create uh, data profiles. Uh, and essentially, data profiling is a process that is used to track a user's history and behavior, and uh, it helps, it helps um, uh, yeah, it helps data analysts map out uh, user behavior and create and curate and tailor ads to individual users. Mm-hmm. But uh, the practice itself is derived from uh, uh, behavioral psychology, uh, which basically proposed that human behavior can be explained, predicted, and controlled based on outward actions that are considered uh, measurable. So it's like a purely mm-hmm. superficial, quantified manner of understanding human beings and you know the self because the self is quantified. It's not. It's not. Uh, it's not about understanding 
you know, why we exist or like, you know, it's not concerned with philosophical questions. It's all about outward behavior. Yeah. And it's all, it's not concerned with anyone's intentions or motives or uh, really anything inside a human being. And it's worth noting that um, as data collect, like technologies for data collection improved and kinds of quantification of behavior uh, increased, an older kind of behavioral science, which had been criticized precisely for its kind of like inhuman and authoritarian tendencies has come back to prominence, right? Like now those concerns, the ethical concerns with this kind of behavioral science have been brushed aside on the basis of the fact that there is such an enormous amount of data that has been collected and that judgments can be made about what people will do um, such that it has a kind of scientific legitimacy, but it also represents these kind of real issues. Okay, and so with that, we have reached the end of uh, the second part of our three-part series, There's Nothing Wrong With Counting. And uh, thank you very much for uh, listening. If you've uh, made it this far, that is excellent. We would very much encourage you to stick around for the third part in this series. Uh, We think that there's going to be a lot of good material in there. And uh, yeah, if you'd like to discuss some of these issues further or just hear about new things that are happening with the podcast, please follow us at The Poplar Tapes on Twitter. Okay, thanks a lot, guys. Mm-hmm.